0: Called Challenge 2.0. In last week's episode of Challenge 2.0, we reviewed the emergence of Hindu nationalism, the challenges it's posing not just within India, but also in the United States. This week, we examine the homegrown version of nationalism, its intersection with white nationalism, patriotism, and prejudice. So we have two guests to help guide us through this look at nationalism, particularly here in the United States. Anila Afzali has been a regular guest on this program, and we are very grateful for that, Anila. She serves as Executive Director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network of the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, and also was named by Seattle Magazine as one of their 2017 Most Influential People in Seattle. Anila, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Always fabulous to be here with you, Jeff.
0: And Terry Kylo serves as Executive Director of Paths to Understanding, which sponsors this program. Uh, Terry is an ordained Lutheran pastor and has devoted much of his attention to the issues of dehumanization and Islamophobia, which at least at times seem to flow out of nationalism. Terry, thank you very much for joining us as well.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Always good to be with you.
0: So let's begin, as I sometimes said, uh, somewhat humorously at the beginning, and that is, how would both of you define nationalism?
2: Well, so I, I would say that nationalism is is a relatively new phenomena, but it's an expression of a more basic kind of human vulnerability or dynamic within human society, which is in-group, out-group thinking. You know, we we as a species have developed in a way where we needed an in-group to survive, and we're kind of suspicious of out-groups. And so as nation-states sort of formed in the last two, couple of centuries, we, we began to kind of move from patriotism, into nationalism sometimes. And nationali- nationalism, it kind of implies an in-group, out-group, not only between one nation and another, but often includes dynamics of in-group and out-group language within the country itself. And so nationalism can be then appended to like white nationalism or other kinds of, na- like Christian nationalism is a, is a specific variety of nationalism. And so what what it is, is a a vulnerability in human beings to otherize and exclude other people, Mm -hmm. in this case, based on a nation and not just simply on some kind of smaller group.
0: Anila, how would you define nationalism?
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with Reverend Terry. Uh, I would specifically draw that distinction between nationalism and patriotism, as Reverend Terry did, uh, and, and add that I, I think I saw this, this one meme that I really like that basically said that uh, patriotism is pride in who you are, and nationalism is pride in who you aren't. So it reinforces, again, that idea of in-group mm outgroup. And patriotism, again, being love for country, whereas nationalism is really sort of about supremacy or rivalry or, you know, sort of this uh, aggressive and really unhealthy uh, version of patriotism.
0: I wonder if basically illuminating that or illustrating that is what we're seeing on a lot of streets throughout really the United States, certainly throughout Washington, and that is pickup trucks. And it often seems to be oversized pickup trucks uh, flying oversized versions of the American flag uh, the groups uh, seem to be seizing on this idea of white nationalism they go by different names proud boys is one of them is this largely a reaction against the increasing diversity in our country do you see how that is fundamental or are there some other issues at play
2: yeah so I, I've been I've been out at, at some uh, black lives matter demonstrations in the last three or four months socially distanced and wearing a mask and everything. Mm-hmm. And definitely many, many pickups coming by with the big with the big flags, which is a way that white nationalists or white Christian nationalists often portray themselves. So they can sort of leverage and pretend to be patriotic, but really there's something much deeper going on. And it's really important to, to recognize that that these white supremacist groups, which is a little bit different than white nationalism, white supremacy is like, we want to keep a pecking order or a caste system in the country. Mm-hmm. White nationalist groups really want to create a, a white ethno state really, and cast out everyone from a different culture or from a different, what they perceive to be a different race. And so we, we see this uh, these movements really working very, very hard uh, over the last 30, 40 years to reimagine themselves and call themselves lots of different, by lots of different names and to market themselves very differently. But we saw an incredible increase in them after the election of Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you believe that white people are superior, it's very difficult for you to accept the idea of an uh, African-American president and then you begin to get other theories about why that president got put in there, <laughs> and and often anti-Semitic theories about, about that as well. And so uh, it's a, an amazingly complex set of things, but, but here's the thing, they've worked hard to, to build their networks, to build their groups, they've worked hard to market themselves, and many Americans, uh, both conservative and progressive and liberal, have failed to recognize their power and the way in which they're working actively to organize.
0: Anila, what's your response to that?
1: Yeah, I would say that it absolutely is a reaction uh, to the changing demographics in our country. Mm -hmm. uh, That we are seeing, you know, if you look at statistics, if you look at data, if you look at sort of any community, we are seeing more sort of... people uh, being more of different backgrounds, racial, ethnic, uh, you know, religious orientation and everything else. So we are seeing an increase in diversity in our country. Uh, And unfortunately, that sense of white identity that some had or have uh, does not align with this increasing diversity, this idea that we are all in this together uh, and really sort of the the beautiful vision that our country has. Uh, I would point back to sort of 2000. 2001. I remember when there was a lot of this similar kind of sentiment uh, of nationalism, uh, and I specifically say nationalism as opposed to patriotism, uh, because again, there is that distinction, uh, and we saw that distinction. I experienced that distinction. Many people of color, many Muslims, many immigrants, uh, Sikhs, and others experienced that differentiation of patriotism versus nationalism, where all of a sudden the country was not rallying together as a country, recognizing that we're all in this together in the response, in response to any kind of foreign threat, but rather really seeing it as, you know, the the sort of manifestation of patriotism coming out in ways like, let's bomb, you know, this country back to the Stone Age. Let's Mm -hmm. sort of exclude these people. We're hearing that with uh, the Muslim ban, for instance, uh, and others now as well. So we are seeing that kind of reaction uh, to instances of sort of, changing demographics in our country, uh, changing sort of uh, wealth inequality in our country where people are facing some real hardships um, and they don't know how to address those. And there are people telling them, hey, the reason that you are poor or the reason that you are struggling is because this group has come and taken that away from you or this group or that group is challenging your access or your piece of the pie, not recognizing that that's not the way it works. Um, And as long as people are fighting with, with each other there's far less of an ability to really look at and change the structural systems in place that actually result in people facing these kinds of hardships, not having enough food to eat or enough sort of work uh, or any other sort of economic crises or issues that people may be facing.
0: Terry, I know we've talked before about the uh, manipulative uh, diversionary tactics being used, especially to get people that are very conscious of their economic disadvantages to come on board with something that may not work to their advantage at all. Uh, could you share some of your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so, so uh, a researcher named Irvin Staub talks a lot about the, the way nationalism or, and eventually even moving into not only dehumanization of minorities, but also into a mass violence against them. And he says that, that there's a couple of factors that are important to look out for. Number one is a, a self-identity as a nation, which posits that you're the best and by far the best, and simultaneously that you're part of a country or a group that is uh, being, uh, being persecuted in some way. If you look at our national leader, that is his speech every time. We're the best, but there are some people that are out to get us and that are holding us down. If we could just get rid of them, we'd be okay. Number two, that there's some kind of of life situation that's painful and difficult. And so we're seeing that as the current economic system continues to ever ever expand wealth and income inequality. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when wealth and income inequality happens? within another system, with a history of racism, of, of our own kind of caste system, where white people expect to do better than people uh, who are brown-skinned, or people of other religions, um, then you begin to have a, a terrible recipe for the rise of nationalism. And so wealth and income inequality isn't the cause of it, but it's kind of part of the soil of it. And and that's it's really important as well, Jeff, I think, to recognize that Christian nationalism plays a significant role here. Um, Andrew Whitehead, a sociologist, uh, did a a study across the country, a pretty impressive one, finding that about 20% of the US population believe in Christian nationalism. And another 35% are like pretty okay with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's like 55% of the population that really kind of think that Christianity should be the only version of religion in this country should have a preeminent place in our public conversation, not just a place of, of respect. And so there are so many uh, tributaries flowing into this, this current moment of nationalism. Uh, and I think we really have to recognize both the complexity, but also recognize that we can do something about this as well.
0: From that line of questioning, I, I have to ask or pose the question, is white Christian uh, or white nationalist Christianity a contradiction in terms.
2: Um, logically, yes, uh, but it, it is not. Um, so we can go back and look at the way Christian theology was formed in a the Christian Church uh, was formed in a way to support white supremacy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so like just one example um, for a time in, in the colonies. If an if a enslaved person from Africa or from anywhere else was baptized, they were freed at that moment because they were now a brother or sister in Christ. But, but they very early on said, oh, no, we got we to change this. And so they changed the baptismal covenant within the Anglican church at the time to say that if you're an enslaved person, especially from Africa, you cannot seek to be freed on the basis of your baptism. Mm -hmm. so basically saying that there is an inner reality that that is spiritual and there's an external reality, which is only political and the two don't come together. Mm -hmm. And so, and so the church was formed in many respects in this country to ignore the, the practical consequences of economic systems or or political systems on everyday people. And so what we have now is, and and of course, as a, as a person, I just want to say like, I grew up in a community where there was an Aryan Nations movement, where there was going to be a war game outside of town, where a church was used as an ammunition dump. Those people all went to church, most of them. And they didn't see a contradiction between the two. And so the weird thing about Christian nationalism and Christian nationalism is is that there's so many varieties. Some are Mm anti-government, and some actually want to take over the government. There are so many different parts of it. Um, but I'm afraid to say that some would easily claim not the moral and ethical grounding of Christianity, but simply kind of an identity of being Christian. And, and and from that, then they they say, well, we should dominate. We should be, because we're superior. We should exclude others because we're the only ones included in God's love.
0: Neil, I might ask you that as you do all the work that you do within the community and particularly among young Uh, Americans that uh, follow Islam what reaction do they have to this what difficulties is that causing for them
1: well, I mean, I I think young Muslims uh, are facing a lot of the consequences directly with Islamophobia, for instance, with school bullying that has gone up. Uh, you know, one of the disturbing statistics is that I've seen is about half of Muslim students face school bullying, uh, and I've also seen numbers even that uh, up to a quarter of the instances of school bullying that Muslim children face in schools is actually at the hands of adults, so school administrators or teachers even. And I know from personal experience that my own niece has experienced this. So uh, there's that, there's the discrimination, the poking fun, the the kind of impact that it can have on your mental and emotional well-being, on your health, uh, on your sense of belonging in a country. All of these are really sort of negative consequences, uh, the kind of microaggressions on a daily basis, the fear or concern, uh, the actual hate crimes and violence that we've seen as well uh, against Muslims, even children sadly, uh, as well as families and, and individuals. So it has real consequences. And again, not just for the Muslim community, it has real consequences for so many different marginalized community members uh, in a lot of different ways. And we've seen all of these sort of consequences uh, in, in the news media, even.
0: As you are a consumer of information, a consumer of news, what is the best way for you to react? And is there a way to reach across and somehow change the orientation of the people actively involved in white nationalism?
1: I would say in terms of what we can do, there, there's actually a lot. Uh, I don't want anybody to ever to walk away from these conversations about really difficult or serious issues uh, and think, oh my God, we're doomed, or oh my God, you know, I'm going to fall into despair. That actually hurts us. That despair immobilizes people, and it's not healthy or helpful. So I, I, what I always try to do is tell people, look, this is an opportunity. This is actually uh, a time when we have a lot more power and potential to really make a difference, perhaps more so than ever in our lifetime, at least for me. Uh, And I see that. I see that in the coalitions that are building. I see that in the kind of movement uh, building that's going on right now across different racial, religious, ethnic, and all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, Number two, I really try to focus people on sort of thinking about things of like, you know, we really need to reach people who think different from us Uh, because unfortunately, especially with social media, and how psychology works, we all suffer from confirmation bias, and we often fall into our little echo chambers, and it's hard to get out of that at times, and it's hard to even understand why somebody would think something that they do. You know, certainly racism might be an answer at times, Islamophobia might be an answer at times, you know, other forms of oppression might be the reason for certain people's beliefs at times, but there could also be or are other reasons as well. We also have to give people the opportunity to change their views. And, and part of what I, I, you know, I regularly critique the sort of left or Democrats on is the fact that they are very quick, often some, not all, but very quick to entirely dismiss people. And what I like to do is not dismiss people, but dismiss ideas, dismiss ideologies, you know, uh, challenge, or, uh, challenge those perspectives, but not dismiss people. Uh, and that's part of what my faith teaches me is to have hope in people, to sort of believe in them, uh, to think in positive ways, optimistic ways, to be hopeful. The Quran, in fact, commands us even to repel evil with good. And when we do that, our enemy could become like a devoted friend. And I've experienced this personally in my life with people who had very strong anti-muslim views and they've had their hearts and minds changed from a sort of two hour conversation or event that we've done or anything else i've literally had people come to me and cry shed tears about the kind of fear and anger and, and negative emotions that they were feeling and experiencing before and they feel sort of liberated when you actually treat them like a human being talk to them and sort of are able to get through to them now we can't get through to everybody but at least having that kind of mindset of allowing that space for people to change their hearts and minds and And finally, what I will point out is it is so important for us to continue being out there and engaging, uh, being active in whatever way we can, you know, making sure that what we promote is factual information, you know, not participating in the sort of echo chambers and the promotion of misinformation out there and conspiracy theories and everything else, making sure we use trustworthy resources when we cite anything, uh, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And really, at the end of the day, working on building the of movements that are multiracial, multiethnic, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, multi-generational, multi-class, multi-everything, uh, to work on uh, ways and policies that will benefit us all, understanding that at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, we are all in this together, and the only way we can protect any of us is to sort of make sure that we protect all of us.
2: Our democracy is at stake in some really profound ways, and there are deep dynamics that are at play here. Uh, but I, I wanna remind everyone that over 60% of Americans in a recent Pew study believe that diversity and that Im- immigrants bring a lot to our, our nation and, that, and we are all stronger together. So first of all, remember that, that we're in the majority on, on this. Irvin Staub again says that what's really important in any dehumanizing process is for active bystanders uh, to stand up and speak their deep values, uh, to tell positive stories. And and to not be silent. Uh, And sometimes, of course, uh, we're naive, we don't really see what's going on. But I I think we're starting to see in this country that, that we can really have an impact if we all move into that active bystander role. And, and begin to change this process. And I think a big part of that has to be moving into more rural areas and having these kind of conversations in places where people are not able to run into a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Jewish person in the store or in Starbucks, right? So we, we actually have to think about building these networks and then moving out into more rural areas where, where people are really kind, they just haven't had the exposure to it. And, and we got to also, lastly, remember that we've we got to be in this for the long haul. This is not some kind of short-term hiccup that, that just happened uh, in the election of Donald Trump and, and in the rise of white nationalism or nationalism in this country. It's going to take a long time to heal these divisions. And we're going to have to practice what Sister Anila talked about and what the Quran speaks about in terms of loving our neighbor and even loving our enemy, those that we disagree with. and to to patiently hang in there in these conversations, to call people into conversation and not simply cancel them. Mm -hmm. I would
0: ask both of you, are there any other groups that you would uh, recommend people be aware of, uh, and perhaps maybe share a story of really effective connection that has occurred as a result of some of these activities?
2: So um, one of the groups that I'm really interested in, in finding out more about is the Western State Center. They've been countering uh, extremist uh, uh, violence and movements uh, across the across the nation, and uh, they actually helped uh, to to give Anila and I a little bit of a grant money uh, for a project we've been working on. And I'm looking forward to them. But of course, Southern Poverty Law Center, Hate Watch, there are so many really great organizations out there that can help us understand these issues. And so I'll just tell you one story. There was a uh, there were there were three guys at, at a church that I went to who had sent an email out to the entire church telling saying that i was naive and that i was uh, i was doing being a bad christian and a bad american i sat down with all three of them after a worship service and a sunday school class and we had a, an hour-long difficult conversation it, it took a lot out of me but it, it was a good conversation and then what happened is that their family members began to talk with them their their pastor began to talk with them other members of their faith community began to talk to them and after about a year's work, and it was not me, it was, it was all up to God, right? Um, all three of those gentlemen realized that they were buying into a fearfulness that did not represent the best of their own Christianity. And they actually went on a mosque visit, and, and they, 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 they changed their mind and their heart. And that can happen.
0: Anita, what's been your experience with that?
1: Yeah, I've, I have many stories to share, but one of the ones that I'll share, because there was an actual image captured by Reuters, was at the national sort of day of action organized by Act for America, one of the largest anti Muslim uh, hate groups in our country. They had organized these rallies in a bunch of different places, including Seattle. Uh, and what was beautiful uh, in response to that was how we had. At least 10 to 1 in terms of numbers, probably more than that even, uh, in terms of counter-protesters showing up in solidarity and support for their Muslim neighbors, and that was really powerful uh, to see. Uh, but what I did with somebody else is put up a Ask a Muslim booth, uh, and I had people, you know, come up to me and ask questions. And I remember this one couple in particular, uh, the woman was in a wheelchair, and she had an anti-Muslim sign on her lap, uh, and she came up with her husband, uh, and I started talking to them. And of course, they repeated all all of the sort of negative tropes and misinformation and conspiracy theories and everything else. Uh, and part of what just sort of always surprises me is how little people actually know about Islam and the kind of information they're getting is just repeating what they've heard. Complete misinformation, completely fabricated lies that they are just repeating. Uh, and when you address one, then they'll move on to another one and to another one. And so that's what was happening with this woman. But I remember at one moment in particular, uh, I don't even know how I got into this, but we were just talking as sort of human to human. And at some point I even held her hand. Like I had my, my arms, cla- I had her hand clasped in my arms like this, and I'm talking to her and trying to understand where she's coming from and the real fear that she was experiencing. And in that moment, I didn't even know this, but Reuters was just there and they captured this photo and and on screen. Yeah. So they captured this moment where I'm holding her hand uh, and talking to her sort of as a fellow human being. And that's probably the first time in her life that she ever even met a Muslim in person versus the sort of misinformation and the sort of uh, caricature of Muslims that she had probably seen on Fox News or other media outlets. Uh, So that was a really powerful time. Now, I don't know if I changed her heart or mind, but I will, but I'm certain that I had more of a chance of doing so than if I had ignored her or called her a racist or an Islamophobe or or anything else. So I remember that. Um, And I would just also say that uh, what, what we're seeing right now, it's so important for people to speak out and speak up and get active, especially faith leaders and sort of elected officials and others, because what people say matters. And especially with faith communities, there are faith communities in every city across our nation. Imagine if all of these faith communities actually stood together and did what their own faith traditions teach of sort of loving loving God and loving your neighbor or sort of just this idea of the golden rule. Imagine if we did that, the kind of change that we could create. Uh, and even for people who are not of a religious background, I have heard directly from atheists and agnostics that they, are, they feel so inspired when they even see people of different faith traditions come together, stand together, united on a moral issue of justice, that that's a powerful image. And I hope we can see more faith leaders step up, especially now because we're going to need it, uh, and be unified in this kind of messaging that we need.
0: There are alternatives, and change is possible, and you've both basically elaborated examples of both of that. I thank you both very much for that. And we hope that all of you will join us for next week's edition of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much for tuning in. And again, thank you, Terry, and thank you, Anila. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean. If you enjoyed this program, Ian Olson found our is the production to be assistant. informative, entertaining and thought provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of paths to
2: understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.